Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who has toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Well, hello, and thanks for joining me for this episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Now, I don't know if it's the same for you, but when I was young, travel was a really big thing, not just for my family, but in general. And doing an overseas trip was an occasional event, something that everyone saved for and looked forward to for months. In my family, whenever anyone left or arrived at our local airport, everyone would go out en masse to greet them or to farewell them. And I remember as a child when my parents would travel, they'd come back from their trip and have a slide night, setting up a projector and inviting friends and family over for dinner, then afterwards to all gather in the living room to see slides of the photos of their trip. I've been back almost a week from a three and a half week trip to Italy and France, and I'm going to do a modern day version of that here. Minus the dinner, sorry, although feel free to make one for yourself. I'm not sure if I've picked up a bug or I'm just recovering from a fabulous but action-packed trip. But I have been exhausted all week. I managed to put on four kilos and my body's got used to having croissants for breakfast and big lunches and, and dinners, not to mention the day drinking. I don't know if it's the same for you, but I just find my body so confused when I get back from a trip in a different time zone. I just want to eat all the time. Anyway, I've talked about how I plan my travel in a former podcast, why I'm not an impulsive traveller. So go back and have a listen if you're interested in how I arrange my trips, because I do them all myself. I don't use a travel agent. Anyway, one of the things I talk about there, and probably in other podcasts I bang on about it as well, it's about how Italy is one of the few countries I return to again and again. But I have a rule that when I go there, I always have to go to another country that I haven't been to. Well, I broke the rule this time and I went back to France for several reasons. One is that I wanted to go to places that aren't too close to the Russian or Ukrainian borders. Really, it's more of a psychological thing than a safety issue. So that discounted some countries I hadn't been to yet. Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, Bulgaria and Georgia, which I'm still dying to get to. I also didn't want to have to pack lots of heavy winter clothes, so that ruled out Denmark, Norway and Iceland. I've already been to Sweden. And while I'm keen to see Montenegro and Albania, I'd like to do them as part of a bigger trip that might include Bulgaria and Serbia. I also wasn't that keen on hanging around airports and getting on lots of planes either and exposing myself each time to the possibility of COVID. And while things have lightened up a bit regulation-wise, at the time I made my bookings, I was worried about negotiating countries' COVID policies a bit. And really, the truth is, after almost three years of no international trips, I was anxious. Really to the point where I thought several times about cancelling the trip altogether. To be honest, I wondered if I'd lost my travel mojo. So I tossed up between Austria and France as potential destinations in addition to Italy, but in the end decided on France, which I'd been to a few times over the past decades, but not really explored much. I'll leave Austria for another time. Please approach the ground to avoid formation. In preparation for arrival, please return to your seat. Put your seat back upright. 
we flew into Venice via Singapore, but we didn't stop because I just couldn't face the crowds. I've been to Venice quite a few times in spring, autumn and winter, and the only time I'd visit now probably is midwinter. I just don't do crowds well. I'm impatient and to me, the beauty is just lost when you're elbowing your way through crowds, you know, to view art or, or whatever it is. And don't get me started on Instagram as taking forever to take acceptable photos while everybody else waits politely for them to finish their posing. I did want to tra- break our trip to Rome up a bit, though, after traveling for 30 hours. So we jumped on a train and headed for Florence just for one night. Now that sounds counterintuitive because Florence is also super touristy, but the difference is that it was easy. I booked us a place right near Santa Maria Novella station so we could just jump out of the train and get some rest at our accommodation, then go back to the station the next morning and continue to Rome. To do the same in Venice requires a bus to the station on the mainland, then a train into Venice itself, and then usually you have to hoik your suitcases across all the little tiny bridges and and up little alleyways, etc. I love Florence. In fact, I lived there for a few months in my early 20s. But a bit like Venice, I'd only ever visit in the winter now because it's so crowded. The last time I went a few years ago, it was December, and while there was still plenty of tourists, it was nothing like it is for the rest of the year. I'm so glad we didn't stay any longer because it was just overwhelming. I thought being September that a lot of the Northern Hemisphere tourists would have gone home preparing for the new school or uni year, but Florence was at capacity. It's always been really popular with Americans, but I have never, ever heard so many American accents there. If you're American, I'd be interested to know, are your friends and family all travelling to Europe at the moment? Have you noticed an increase, particularly in the number of first-time travellers? Anyway, I had found a reasonable and very, very tiny hotel, and we spent a nice enough evening before heading to Rome the next day. We did have a quick call into my one of my favourite places in Florence, the Farmacia Santa Maria Novella, which is an ancient pharmacy. You just have to, to see it to understand it. It's quite extraordinary. My husband and I both really love Rome. It feels small somehow, yet we never fail to find something new. I like staying right in the centre. I'm a walker and I love being able to get everywhere on foot. So we usually stay around Campo di Fiori because it's so close to everything, including Trastevere across the river, which I love to wander. And you can find great places to stay tucked down one of the tiny pedestrian alleyways. We've done a lot of the major sites in Rome before, so we basically just hung out, checked out things we hadn't seen before, like the really macabre capuchin crypt in Santa Maria della Concezione della Cappuccini, which is quite extraordinary. It has the skeletal remains of more than 3,500 bodies of the friars. And basically they've used their bones to make these decorations. I mean, everything from chandeliers to to altars and the idea is to show you the impermanence of life the unimportance of the body and I finally got to eat at a restaurant in a building that dates from 1080 that I'd never managed to get into before and it actually exceeded my expectations it was great 
from Rome, we caught a train to Formia on the coast to get a fast boat to Ponza, which is one of the Pontine Islands. I've been to a couple of Italian islands before. We've seen Sicily, Sardinia, and I've been to Ischia and Capri. But milling around in the crowds at the port, waiting for the Aliscafo, I realised that we're probably the only non-Italian tourists there. Of course, this could be different in high season, but the whole time we were there, we only had one person speaking English, and he was a young guy who was Italian but was living in LA. Anyway, the island is stunning. It's quite small, but and it's very laid back, and it's a little untamed. It's not that sculptured, curated kind of look that Capri has. It attracts mainly southern Italians who many of whom have been going there for generations for holidays. The colour and the clarity of the water is just incredible. We stayed in a place on a really high part of the island that had a terrace with the most incredible views. It's somewhere that you'd pay a fortune for if you're in Positano or Amalfi but it was so reasonable and just waking up to that every day was incredible. By the way, if you sign up for my newsletter on the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com I'm going to put details of where I stayed, places that we ate at, etc. in Italy and France there. And I'm going to put it behind a very modestly charged paywall because I need to make this podcast expense neutral. But there's still plenty of free content on Italy and France on the podcast from how to buy a one euro house, Italy for culture lovers, to postcards from Nice, Venice, Amalfi, Paris, a Sicilian food tour and more. There's heaps. So just go have a look. After Ponza, we took a train to Terni in Umbria, which was a convenient spot to pick up our hire car. I have to tell you that car hire in Europe was a lot more expensive than when we were last there. From Terni, we drove through the beautiful Umbrian countryside to Tori, which is one of the region's lovely hilltop villages. Getting to our accommodation, which was just off the main square, was really harrowing. It, it's all, of course, uphill, and the streets, which were originally built for carts rather than cars, are so narrow, you could reach out an arm out of your window on each side and touch the walls. I think this might have been my favourite accommodation of the trip. It was such an historical and characterful place, and the owner of the B&B, so it wasn't an Airbnb, it was an actual B&B, was just so charming and helpful. And it had a rooftop overlooking all the terracotta tiled houses and into the really green Umbrian countryside. One thing to remember about Italy, the payback for views are stairs, lots of them. It's rare to have an elevator in any of these old buildings. If you need an elevator, don't stay in a hill town and you're probably better off staying in a large modern hotel chain. In this hotel, our luggage was hauled up through a window with a pulley system, which was so fascinating to watch. We met some friends here from London. Usually we go to visit them, but it was really nice to, to meet them here and spend time exploring the region together. 
if you haven't been to Umbria, I highly recommend it. It's it's very it's a very picturesque region, and there's so much to do, from visiting wineries to going on truffle hunts and visiting all the other hilltop villages like Assisi. From Toddy, we did a big drive to Turin, almost all on freeway, which I loathe, but we had to return the car by a certain time. I first went to Turin a couple of years ago because my cousin and her family live there. I had no expectations of it, but it turns out that it's a city that you absolutely need to put on your list, especially if you're a foodie. Turin certainly feels different. It's much more northern European in feel, and you can sense the wealth in the city, in the architecture, which is on a very big scale. It's grand and elegant, and there is so much good food. The region is the birthplace of the forerunner of Nutella, much better version, I have to say, and I really suggest you buy some while you're there. A particularly good vermouth, which only comes from Turin. Lots of coffee was born there. They have the white truffles, superb chocolate, and so much more. What really surprised me, and I didn't get to see this last time, was that the city is also home to the second biggest Egyptian museum in the world. The biggest is in Cairo, but in my opinion, although it's a very long time since I've been there, it's better than the one in Cairo. It's just extraordinary, and you probably need two visits to really take it all in. It's just huge. It was great to catch up with family, and I really enjoyed my time in Turin. I have an article coming out soon about it, and one on Ponza as well, so I'll post links on my social media account when they're out, in case you want to have a read. We left the car in Turin and jumped on a train to Lyon. I love getting trains in Europe. They're so they're so comfortable and you get to see some spectacular scenery. My only bugbear, particularly with Italian trains, is that there's such limited space for luggage. Lyon Lyon is another beautiful city I knew nothing about. We took an electric bike tour to learn a bit more, which was a nice break from walking because by this stage my blisters had blisters and my knees were screaming out for some stare-free time. It was actually my birthday here, so we went out to lunch in a very typical huge French bistro that a friend had recommended, which was great. It was kind of strange seeing plexiglass between the very close tables, which are typical in France, but I guess that was a way of dealing with COVID restrictions. I also kind of liked it because I'm always a bit anxious about knocking somebody's rosé glass off the table with my big bum as I try to squeeze past. Again, there's plenty to do in Lyon. I'd advise getting the Lyon card from the tourist office, which gives you discounted entry and trips on public transport. Two days was definitely not enough. I'd say four or five or even a week wouldn't be too much if you wanted to explore a bit further. From Lyon, we caught a train to Dijon and we picked up a car and headed west into Burgundy. It would have made more sense to continue going on to Paris after Dijon rather than backtracking, but we didn't want to take the car into Paris and it wasn't really that far. So we stayed in this tiny village, so small it had no shops, um, no pubs or bars or anything really, and was famous for nothing in particular, but it was very, very pretty. And the B&B that we stayed in there was just gorgeous. And so we did day trips to places like Chablis that had the Saturday morning markets on and, you know, all these beautiful, very historic villages in that area. It was just 
gorgeous and we had some great food lots and lots of cheese did wine tastings it was fabulous then back to Dijon so Dijon again was a surprise incredible architecture in the historic center and of course another seriously foodie town and home of course to the famous mustard we mainly wandered shopped and ate and then after returning the car we took our final train trip to flight was leaving from I'd two days there and we stayed in a hotel that we stayed at before with a great location it's just a, a shortish walk oh my dog has come to join me if you hear that snorting it's not me falling asleep but yep so it's just a short walk from the aria to the airport to notre dame and just about everything actually the Musée d'Orsay was on my list this time. I don't know if I've said that correctly, probably not. French is not my forte. So we spent a few good hours here taking in the art. For me, especially if you really enjoy Impressionism, it's better than the Louvre. We also caught up with a friend for lunch who just happened to be celebrating his birthday, which turned into dinner. We wandered along the Seine, did a little lunch shopping and just basically took in Paris. Each time I go, I fall a little more in love with it. And then the long trip home, always the least fun bit. We did break it up with a night in Singapore on the way back, which given the night arrival and morning departure, just definitely wasn't enough. I didn't get my hawker dinner fix. It was an absolutely perfect trip. And the two different airlines we flew with managed to coordinate and not even lose our luggage, which was quite extraordinary and one of my biggest fears. The other was getting COVID, which according to my rat tests, I have managed to avoid. Our English friends weren't so lucky, unfortunately. What pleases me most, though, is that I've got my travel mojo back and I can't wait for my next trip. Anyway, thank you for indulging me as I relived it. I've only gone into it briefly here because it would take hours. You can see a few of my pictures, if you like, from the trip on my Instagram page, Natasha Mirosh, or as I said, sign up for the newsletter on Extra Virgin website. Thanks as always for listening, and wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until we meet again, bon voyage and bon appétit.